Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on July 18th, 2017 at the Wellfleet Preservation Hall. The theme for the evening is Us and Them. Okay, so give a really good, supportive welcome to Irvin. Irvin! I was not yet six years old in the worst of times in 1944. The German army just moved into Hungary. And one of my earliest memories is walking down a major thoroughfare with Maria, who worked for my family, and the two of us pushing my little sister in a little carriage when these huge tanks were rolling in the German army arrived. And that was the beginning of a horrible time. My other early memory is very early in the morning, hearing sounds from the adjoining room, waking up, going in there, and the two families who lived in that apartment were gathered. People were crying. My uncle had a little rucksack and was putting this yellow piece of paper into it. It was his call up to go to a forced labor camp. That summer, led by Eichmann, 50 Nazis supported by thousands of Hungarian gendarmes and the population gathered 450,000 Hungarian Jews, took them to Auschwitz, and most of them were killed immediately. Uh, these were all people from the countryside, and the people from Budapest were basically untouched as yet, but we knew what was to come. The Swede, Ralph Wallenberg, came to Hungary to try to help and to try to save lives, and he created the so-called protective pass and set up protected houses where the people who had these paths could move into. It wasn't safe to be in all those houses because there were constant raids on them, but it was much safer than being anywhere else. So we took our few belongings that we could put on a carriage and we pushed it late at night in the dark city up to the not very far place of this protected house. Walking there was dangerous because anything could be done to us at that time. One of the people who came with us was this woman, Maria, who worked for my family. She was Christian. She could have pushed us away. She could have seen us as them, but she did not. She saw us as human beings, and she cared for us, and she came with us wanting to help. In that place, which was totally full of people, she prepared dough. She, in a baby carriage, took it to a bakery in order to be baked there, and then she brought it back to the house. Along the way, one day, Hungarian Nazis stopped her, uh, told her that she shouldn't have been helping Jews, made her stand at the wall with her hands up for hours. And at some point, another Hungarian Nazi who knew her came in and said, let her go. And she came back, and she immediately continued what she has been doing. In addition to that, she took a copy of this protective pass to my father, who was in another forced labor camp, asked somebody to call him to the barbed wire. And he came. She handed him this copy of that pass and also told her where we were staying. The whole group that my father was part of was being taken to Germany not too long after that. And they made a stopover in Budapest. And during that stopover, my father escaped. He simply walked out of the barracks where they were staying, and the guard stopped him and said, where are you going? And he said, my company left. I've stayed behind, and I'm trying to catch up with them. So he jumped on a streetcar, came to the house where we were staying, and he was there in hiding. One day, I looked out the window and saw a group of black 
uniformed men, Hungarian Nazis, marching down the street, and I shouted, they are coming. Then I went to the door of the apartment and looked out, and I could see the gate to the house, and indeed, they were coming in, these Hungarian Nazis marching in large numbers of them, and there were raids in the house, so you knew what was going to happen. My mother told my father to sit down in a corner of the room, pushed an armchair over him, threw a blanket over the armchair, and these men came in, looked at everything in the apartment, looked into drawers and everywhere, and they didn't find him. Uh, it was a couple months that we lived there. And then one morning, we looked outside, and there was a big tank standing in front of the building. It was the Soviet army that arrived. I was sick. They put me into a blanket, and they took me outside, and there were these soldiers standing next to the tank, and we were gathering around, and our lives were saved. Whatever followed after that, we survived. Okay, next one up for the evening is Eric Scholl. Eric Scholl. Eric Scholl. I'm going to tell you about the time that I went to North Korea. And a lot of people ask me, how'd you even get to North Korea? I drove. <laughs> like, if you, like, let's say this is Seoul, South Korea. If you went outside, got in your car, drove to Hyannis, you'd be in North Korea. It's exactly the same distance. Only somewhere around West Yarmouth, you'd hit the most intensely landmined area in the world, the DMZ. And that's where this story starts. I'm in a little white minivan with a bunch of reporters. I'm a reporter. And we, our South Korean military escorts driving us through the uh, DMZ, just one Jeep, cute little Jeep. And at some point, it peels off, and we're just sitting there waiting. And it's very quiet in the van, which is weird for reporters. And I'm sort of thinking a thought that I've probably thought too many times in my life, which is I'm risking my life for what exactly? And then they start coming over the horizon, these big, bulky North Korean military vehicles, one, two, three, and these stern-looking people get out. And they don't only look at our papers, but they also look at our, through our phones and our cameras. But then three other people come along who are more jovial and laid back, and they're wearing designer suits, like Hugo Boss suits with the label still on. And those are our handlers, and they stick with us for the rest of the trip. And off we go into North Korea along these beautiful, smooth roads, only we're the only cars. And every time we get to a town, at the main intersection, there's a uniformed officer directing traffic standing on a pedestal, except we are the only traffic. There aren't really any bicycles. And about every half mile along the road, there's a soldier standing at attention in the middle of the field. And we start wondering, is he there because of us, or is that just his regular job? Now, the only problem is when we ask any of the handlers a question about the military or the government or anything like that, the response is always the same. They pick up a mic. Of course, our little bus has karaoke. <laughs> and they say, now we're going to sing you a song about our homeland. And the music <laughs> begins. Or they tempt us by saying, Food is so plentiful in this country. Everything you heard about it, there being a famine is fake, so plentiful that we're going to give you a meal with 11 dishes before you leave. And I don't even know what the significance of 11 dishes is. It might be the, like the spinal tap thing where it's just one more than 10. <laughs> so we visit a bunch of factories, which is the main purpose of the trip. And then we're taken to see a statue, a huge golden statue of Kim Il-sung, the founder of the country, and his son. Kim Jong-il, and only we're told we're not allowed to take photos, which seems weird to me because it would be like taking someone to Mount Rushmore and saying, you know, these are the people that the country is most proud of and, and, and created this iconic work of art, but no pictures. But never mind about taking pictures of that. I figure I'll take some pictures of a little crowd that's gathered around sort of staring at us, and they're standing under a sign that I later learned says, we don't envy anybody. 
snap, big mistake. I'm immediately rushed by all kinds of people, plain clothes, uniformed, grabbing at my phone. Guns are actually drawn. Now, to his credit, one of the handlers quickly diffuses the situation, but only by getting me to agree to manually delete the photo in full view of everybody like I am disarming a weapon. And from then on, I'm followed everywhere. Like, I go to pee right up to the urinal. So finally we get to this meal. And by the way, my dad had been in the army in Korea and when I told him I was going to North Korea, he was pretty cool about it except he said, bring lots of cans of tuna fish because you don't want to eat any food they give you because they'll drug you and then they'll brainwash you. So I w wasn't sure about this meal, but we come to the state guest house and it's pretty elaborate. They, they lock us in though behind this big wooden door. On the other side we can see this billboard that says, we are winning. And it's not just military imagery, it's everybody, everybody's winning. And finally, when we're, on the, we're kind of locked in, they only leave one person watching me. And he's a young soldier. And he asks to see my phone, of course, which I'm getting pretty used to at this point, but I'm sort of thinking why, because he pretty much made me delete all the photos I've taken. And he takes it and he starts flipping through and I say to him, yeah, those are some photos I took in South Korea. I went to a baseball game there. And uh, that's Cape Cod. That's kind of a beach place I go to. And uh, that, those are some pictures of my dog. And he says nothing. He doesn't give the phone back. Just keeps going through the photos. And then I realize he's just checking what things are like on the other side. On the way home, we stop in Honolulu, and we meet a bunch of South Korean journalists. And the one thing that they kept emphasizing is, don't think people in North Korea are weird. They're just like us. They laugh at jokes. They care about their families. The only thing is that they're indoctrinated into this really weird life philosophy where their value as a citizen is measured every day with potentially brutal consequences. And I think about the soldier. And I think about how happy I am to be in the US where I can say and take pictures of whatever I want. And the government actually protects that right. Now, I'm not a political guy, but I find myself these days saying things to my seven-year-old nephew like, if you ever feel like there's something that you need to say, shout it out. Thank you. So uh, next to the stage, we have Jerry. Jerry Riley, I think, in the house. Climbing down from the booth above. So us and them, us and them. Uh, Red Sox, Yankees, Democrats, Republicans, Coke, Pepsi, love karaoke, regular karaoke. Now, I've got a friend, uh, his name's Scott Wilson. I've known him for 35 years. And we get together pretty regularly um, and hatch ridiculous plans. Now, these aren't plans, these are plans for our own amusement. Um, occasionally, one of these actually gets out and escapes into the real world. But mostly, we're just entertaining ourselves. So one night, about eight years ago, uh, Scott came over. Now, he, he deals in collectibles and antiques. You know, he's yard sales, flea markets, eBay, all that kind of stuff. And um, he comes over with the, and starts telling me his latest score, you know, for some collectible he got that's going to be worth a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. And I said, is there anything people don't collect? He said, it's really interesting you mention that because um, I didn't think there was. I thought that people collect everything. And he said, but about a month ago, I realized I've been seeing for the last 20 years at, at yard sales and uh, places, these little statues, uh, they sold them by the millions in like the 80s and the 70s, the Spencer Gifts. The most famous one is a little guy and his arms are outstretched and he's kind of round and it says, I love you this much. <laughs> and uh, there was the kind of thing you would give your, you know, your mother for a birthday or something when you're six years old. So anyway, Scott said, so I'm collecting them. And I said, really, what are you gonna do with them? He said, I'm not sure, but uh, we'll do something. So for the whole rest of the night, we started hatching plans of what we could do with a collection of these little I love you statues. Um, 
by the end of the night, we didn't really have a plan, but we had an agreement. We were going to do something. It was going to be multifaceted. But most importantly, we had a name for the whole thing. It was going to be called the Summer of Love. <laughs> so a couple nights later, oh, the next day, I got on the internet, and I, immediately, and, I, and I went and I got these stickers made, Summer of Love. And then uh, a couple of nights later, we got uh, our usual suspects, these friends who are always up for our ridiculous plans. And we had a brainstorming session. People came up with all kinds of crazy things. A lot of them involved music, because we're saying, you know, love songs. There's a lot of great love songs out there. Um, so one of the guys who was there was our, our friend Ollie. Now Ollie is um, an amazing character. He's hysterically funny, and he has the, the the wonderful attribute that he'll take any idea way, way, way too far. So Ollie latches onto this thing, um, and. Uh, he goes out and he makes these stencils and he starts spray painting them all over Cambridge on the sidewalks. And there, it's Jesus on the cross, says, I love you this much. <laughs> so, but the, he's not done yet. He then gets his friend of his, and they, who's a video guy, and they go in and they make this commercial. Now the commercial, you've probably seen these, they were on, you know, uh, KTEL records from 20 years ago. They would sell these collections of, you know, all the funk songs of the 1980s or whatever. And they, all the ads for these records were all the same. They, they were like flipping titles of songs and little snippets and whatever. So he and his friend go make this ad for Love Karaoke. And they sing all these songs, you know, Wove Shack, Baby Wove Shack, you know, and it's, uh, and it's got all the flipping titles. And at the end, it says, you know, Wove Karaoke, coming to a karaoke bar near you. So next, Ollie takes this, this ad and he goes and he scouts and he finds this mecca of karaoke in East Cambridge, this bar that that's what they do. If you're in a karaoke, this is where you go. And he goes in and he starts telling, you know, pitching the manager that this is going to be the next big thing in karaoke. Love karaoke. He shows him the ad. Manager's kind of a little dubious. And he says, look, I'll tell you what. Um, what about we set aside 10 tables for you on Friday night and we'll give this a try and see. And it's like, all right. So the Friday night, we round up like 35 people. We go to this karaoke bar. We show up. Now, the thing is, karaoke, hardcore karaoke, it's serious. These people come every week and they compete and they're, you know, so all of a sudden, the regular karaoke crowd shows up, and half the bar is reserved. And they're not happy about this. And they're like, what's this going on? There's all oh, some group. We show up. Scott has all these statues. They start putting our love you statues all over the bar. People that regular karaoke folks are like, this is uh, what's going on. The music starts, and we have Ollie put his name in the hat. Um, and, uh, and we wait. And so they pull a name. They pull another name. Third name is Ollie. Ollie gets up and launches into the Beatles. Wove, wove, wove. All you need is wove. Immediately, 35 people in the audience jump up with cigarette lighters. Wove, wove, wove. The karaoke people are like, what is going on here? Once this happens, the dam breaks, and 35 of us put our names in the hat. And the karaoke people are completely mystified about this. Over the next two and a half hours, we had uh, a sort of survey course of the last 50 years of pop music. Uh, every love song you can imagine. Uh, you know, I don't know how to love him. Uh, uh, love is the drug. Uh, on and on and on and on and on. Um, after about a half an hour, the regular karaoke people uh, just like threw in the towel. And from that point on, everybody just sang love songs. Us and them had come together. That's good. Yeah. All right. Next up is James Shannon. Woo! I was thinking about this a lot today, trying to figure out um, how to tell this particular story. And I realized there's quite a few stories, so I need to trim it down. But what I came up with uh, toward the end was, there really is no us and them, is there? You know what I mean? Like, it's always, we're trying to make it about us and them. But, uh, okay. So <laughs> I'm, uh, what am I, I'm like 17 years old, kicked out of high school, and I, I end up hitchhiking down to Florida from Vermont. A lot of stuff happens along the way. It takes me about two months to get there, to meet my girlfriend. And I finally get there. I'm broke. 
All I have on is a pair of shorts, no shoes, burned bad. Like I say, there's a lot of other story here. And I see her on the street, and I, Erica! And she starts running in the other direction. <laughs> I finally catch up with her. Turns out we're not together anymore. She's living with the guy that owns the bar that she's working at. And maybe I could sleep in the treehouse in his backyard. Okay, long story short, I'm homeless for a while. Now one of the, uh, the us and them part is this. I grew up a rich kid. Um, and I've always been really embarrassed about that. I've been a little ashamed about it. My mom, you know, I grew up on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. My mom had a, you know, she had a studio downtown. So whenever people say, oh, you grew up in Manhattan? I'm like, yeah, I grew up downtown. Like that's, you know, and I'm like, you know what? I gotta, I gotta let that go. Um, that's probably another story. Anyway, so I'm homeless, I'm down there. Now I'm getting to the us and them part. And I hook up with this group of homeless dudes, and this one guy in particular, this gorgeous, tall, black man named Slim. And we just hook up, and we hang out, and he's like showing me the ropes. And one day he says, look, we're gonna make some cash today. I'm like, how are we gonna do that? Well, we're gonna steal this boat, and we're gonna row it out to that island out there, about three miles out, and there's a lot of crap on this island that he feels is very sellable. <laughs> um, so we row out to the island, and he's got a, his usual gallon of gallo, whatever the hell it was. We get out to the island, and sure enough, this island is just loaded with detritus, crap. It's all crap. So we, he starts filling up the boat with the crap. But there's so much crap that he's like, nah, we, and he finds another boat while we're there. He says, let's fill this one up too. And we'll bring them both back. I got, he's like, I got places we can sell all this shit. Okay. So this takes, this takes about four or five hours. Finally, we got both boats full and we're heading back. You know, we're pretty drunk. Um, and it's getting kind of dark and the wind's picking up and the boat we're towing starts going down and he's getting pissed and I, I can't stop laughing. It's just so fucking hysterical to me. And now he's getting mad at me and we're rowing and we're rowing. The boat's gone. We've got to cut it loose. Otherwise it's going to bring down the other boat. So now we're about maybe a half mile from shore and way off from where we started from. And now this boat starts to go down. We get maybe 100, 200 yards offshore, and it's clearly over. Boat's down, and we just start swimming. All right, so now I'm getting to the us and them part. So we're swimming. We finally, we make it to shore, and there's this, like, uh, cement wall. And, you know, we're really, we're really tired. We climb up this wall, and we stand up, and it's, this is in, uh, oh, by the way, this is in Florida in, uh, Coconut Grove, and it's this mansion, this incredible mansion, and there's this huge party going on. You know, Mr. Howell, Jess, what's the lady? Martha Stewart kind of pottery barn situation going on. And here's, you know, here's me and Slim just climbing up on the wall. And they're all just like, and looking at us, and you know, we start squishing our way <laughs> up the drive, and uh, <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, part of me was like, oh yeah, I know this, I know these people, <laughs> but I'm not one of them right now, um, and we just kind of squished our way, and they were just sort of staring at us. And then this one guy, who was probably the owner, he had these green pants. That I will never forget. And it, it, it's like, it was almost like he just felt like he had to do something. And he just, <laughs> I don't even know what he said. And we just started booking it the fuck down the driveway and got out of there. Good timing. So that's it, us and them. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, next to the stage, we have Jody. Okay, so us and them. Um, so like a previous speaker said, I grew up with no money. We were on welfare. It was, um, it was hard to go to the supermarket, you know, with the food stamps. Um, and I started work very early. I probably worked when I was 10. I remember planting Pachysandra to just get what I needed to get. And, um, and so years ahead, you know, I, I, I'm successful, I work corporate, I make a lot of money, I buy a house, I have all the toys. And I moved to the Cape 10 years ago and I decided, you know, I'm retired now, I can um, give back, you know, give back to the pantries, the soup kitchen, the aid support group, helping our women, all the organizations that are nonprofit and do wonderful things for the community. And so um, I, scouring around, you know, I've got a lot of connections in Provincetown and I, you know, cook at the soup kitchen all winter and I work at the aid support group and, you know, you name it, I do it. And, um, and so then I decided, you know, I want to venture up Cape a little bit. So I go up to, um, I believe it was Harwich and, um, and I just said, you know, is there anything available for volunteer work? And they said, yeah, we have the Greater Boston Food Bank, the pantry, and it's huge. You know, it's like this big warehouse. And, you know, my background was manufacturing and warehousing. So I said, well, great, I would love to do something there. Okay, so I go and I interview and, you know, I have to meet with someone and I fill out forms and, you know, I get my clearance, whatever that means. And, um, and so... Um, I get a call and they said, well, what shift would you like to work? And I said, well, you know, I, I'm very flexible. I, you know, I set my own schedule and um, how about Tuesday mornings? I said, yeah, that would be great, Tuesday. Now this is six years ago that I started doing this up there. And so um, this is me, like this is how I look all the time. I've got tattoos, I shave my head so people don't ever know what to make of me and that's okay. You know, I'm a very good person but there's some judgment I think when I go into certain situations that they're not sure what this is all about. And I am who I am, you know, and I'm not gonna change for anyone. And so I go to this place of, you know, operation, and I meet with the person, male person that's in the warehouse, and it was like seven o'clock in the morning I was supposed to be there. So I show up early, because that's who I am. I get there like quarter to seven, and I said, hey, is Jim so-and-so here? Yeah, okay, he'll be right out. I meet Jim, and I said, I'd love to work in the warehouse. And he says, oh, no women have ever worked in the warehouse. I said, well, I don't really feel comfortable being on the line with the clients because it's just too close to home. You know, I think I'll, I'll um, it'll bring back too much of my childhood. Um, so, but I would love to work the warehouse. I have my forklift operating license. I can do whatever needs to get done in the warehouse. I want to do the warehouse. So I said, all right, we'll give it a shot, you know, and so... My first week there, I'm in the warehouse, and it's only the guys in the warehouse, and their wives, and now it's an older community up there, the wives work on the line, and the men work in the warehouse. And it's 2014 at this time, we're in the, you know, we're in the 2000s, but still no women have worked in the warehouse. And I'm like, I'm okay, I'm, I'm just gonna get through this, I wanna do this, you know, and I'm gonna try to be as personable as I can, and this is me, you know, hi, I'm showing up. And so, um, so uh, all of a sudden, like the guys aren't gonna talk to me and the women don't know what to make of me. So for like the first year, nobody's, they gather at the beginning of the shifts and everybody like talks about their golf game and what they did over the weekend and nobody's talking to me and I'm fine. Like I'm not there to make friends, even though it would be nice to have some different community. <laughs> I'm just gonna be there and I'm gonna do my shtick. I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna, you know, take 50 pounds of potatoes and lug them out to the, where the produce is and, you know, whatever it takes, I'm gonna do it because I'm a hard worker and I've worked since I was 10 years old. And so, you know, time goes by and now it's coming up on I've been there five years. So the us, <laughs> and the second year they made me the boss of the warehouse. So now I have to tell these older gentlemen that I need a dozen eggs, you know, which isn't a dozen, it's, it's a crate, it's 50 pounds of eggs and they don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear it from me. So instead of like having to ask and fight with them because they're just not going to do it, I go and I get them myself. So I basically am supplying the entire line on either side. We have produce and then we have dairy and then we have meats. 
and they stock the cans. And that's fine, you know, like their job is to take it from one counter and put it over here, take it from one counter and put it over here. And I'm running around like a crazy woman for like three hours every Tuesday morning, but I love it. And now after all these years, people are finding out who I really am. They invite me to their circle. Someone bakes, they always put something aside because they know when I first get there, I want to stock the bread. And they're like, Joe, we're going to put something aside so you can have it at the end of the shift. So us and them, it's finally come around that I am no longer them. I am part of us. And I'm so grateful because I've met an amazing group of people and they opened up and they accepted me for who I am and the judgment is gone. So I went home that night and I figured, I want to watch the coverage. So I don't watch CNN, that's fake news, MSNBC, another fake news. There's only one channel if you want to watch what's going on, and that is Fox Television. And the great thing about Fox Television is they give you three points of view. The right, the far right, and the third right. Now, I would recommend you go to their website for your, for your viewing pleasure download the app and watch it in the original German. Because there's nothing better than watching Sean Hannity speaking in German when he's doing his show. So I'm watching it, and that night, and I have to change the story now because he used to be a big wheel at Fox. He's now doing podcasting somewhere in a basement in America. Bill O'Reilly is interviewing Michael Moore of Fahrenheit 9-11. So Michael Moore goes to Bill O'Reilly, he says, listen, would you send your kids to Iraq? And Bill O'Reilly goes, no, but I would go. And I said, man, this is kind of strange. You're in Vietnam, you got three deferments. But this being America, we have a war every couple of years, so you get to pick and choose which war you want to go to. And now Bill O'Reilly wants to fight in Iraq. I said, this is great. So night after night, Bill O'Reilly's not going anywhere. So I said, maybe he can't find the airport. So... <laughs> I issue a press release saying, I'm going to hold a press conference at the Foxhole over at uh, 48th and 6th, and I'm going to go in there and drag Bill O'Reilly and bring him to the airport. So I go down to uh, in front of the Foxhole, a couple of cab drivers, and I pointed up and I said, there's a man in there who wants to fight for my freedom, and we're going to go and bring him to the cab. So I go to go into the Fox Studios, and they block me security. They said, no, you can't go in, but you can go to the mailroom on the side and leave the flyer for him, and maybe he'll call you. Yeah, okay. So I do that. So a couple of days later, I get a phone call from a producer at Fox, and she's a producer for Neil Cavuto, who does a business show, which I didn't know that much about. They said, would you come on and talk about traffic, talk about Republicans tipping, and, and things like that. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll come on and talk about that. I said, I have no problem doing that. <laughs> so the great thing about Fox is they have money. So they said, would you like a car? And I said, oh, yes, I don't want to take the subway in. So they sent a, a black Lincoln air-conditioned car out to me in Queens. Get in there, hot August day right through the Midtown Tunnel, over to Foxhole, down into the green room, and I'm sitting there, and they're putting on the makeup, and all the other guests there, they're all hedge funds guys and stockbrokers, and they're talking about how great the war is and how to make money off the war, and they're going one after another in front of Neil. Now my turn comes, and they say, no, you can't sit in front of Neil. You have to go to the side to another studio. But I said, everybody else sat in front of him. I want to see Neil. They said, no. So they take me to a studio that's about 100, 200 feet away from where Neil Cavuto is. They put me in the studio, sit you in a chair, give you an earpiece, and you look into a camera. So you can't see him and you can hear him, so you can't judge how he's reacting to what you're saying, but he can see you and, and, and gauge what you're doing. So I was supposed to be on for five minutes. So I won't bore you, it will not last five minutes when I'm gonna show you right now. But the thing is about Fox television, when they wanna demonize a guest, now this wasn't done with all the guests before that, there'll be a ticker tape running underneath and in the ticker tape it says, Osama bin Laden's driver has been arrested. And in the upper right corner, ACT UP that day had a demonstration on 8th Avenue where they stripped naked and blocked traffic. Now, if you were going by the TV, you saw me on Fox, and the sound was down, I was arrested as Osama bin Laden's driver, and I was naked on 8th Avenue. I was a very busy guy that day. So now I go in there, 
And if you look, it looks like Neil Cavuto was hit by a two-by-four. All right, welcome back, everyone. Well, you would think with thousands of delegates descending on Manhattan next week, the cabbies would be going gaga. They're not. John McDonough now has been driving a cab in the Big Apple since 1977 and says that next week is going to be the biggest mess he's ever seen. So, John, you're not too psyched. Why not? Well, uh, because of all these so-called security precautions that are going around Manhattan and diverting the traffic everywhere, and I think uh, Bloomberg is set up where uh, some of the delegates will be able to come in from the airports for free. We just wish that uh, they use some of the money that they have from the war profits from Halliburton and Bechtel and do a little trickle-down economy down to the cab drivers. All right, so I take it you're not a fan of the Republicans. No, we're organizing a protest against Republicans. We're asking cab drivers to turn their lights on and shine the light on Bush and also passengers getting into the yellow taxis to ask the driver to turn on the headlights and do a protest for the four days that the Republicans are in town. What if they already have daytime running lights anyway? I guess uh, none of the cabs. They're Crown they Victorias. Okay. There's 11,000 of them. They don't have the lights on. So if you do see a cab... Uh, during those four days, with the lights on, they'll be there protesting the Bush administration and his policies probably in Iraq. So there were no similar uh, protests like this when the Democrats gathered in Boston? Uh, I drive out of New York. I don't know what they were doing up in Boston, but this is what we're organizing here in New York City. All right. John, w would you pick up a Republican delegate if he or she needed a ride? Oh, of course. And yeah. also, we're giving out a free coupon to anybody that wants to fight the war in Iraq. Uh, if they get that patriotic fervor during a convention, we'll give them a free ride to the airport uh, if they want to go to Baghdad and fight for my freedom. I think it'll be a very worthy cause. It'll help us to help the war uh, situation. And we'll be glad to take anyone to the airport that wants to fight on my behalf. John, is there anything this president has done that you like? Uh, not in the last four years, and I don't okay. want to see him in the next four years. All right, well, you made that abundantly clear. John, thank you for coming. We appreciate it. No problem. I don't know why you're clapping. My wife was watching that, and she goes, oh, you're going on Fox. This could be an opportunity to get a job at Fox Television. I could be the resident expert when something happens with the cabbies. They can bring me in. I could talk about Uber, and I could talk about Lyft. Needless to say, it didn't go that way. When that was cut short, because it was supposed to last longer, the door busted open into the room. Security comes running in. The producers come running in. They are pissed. So they ripped the earpiece out of me, and I'm doing my good Ed Koch. Hey, how did I do? How's it going? Right? <laughs> they did not see the humor. Now, what normally would happen is you go back to the green room, and you have the makeup taken off, and you discuss your appearance. Now, I'm, the only thing I'm thinking about is now, i got to get out to 6th Avenue and get to this town call before they cancel it. So what happens, instead of going back to the green room, I bolt out of the studio and start running through Fox. And security is running after me, and the producers are running after the security. Now, nobody knows why I'm running through Fox television, but everyone is running after me. Now, I don't know where I'm going. I've never been on Fox. So I'm running through cubicles, and I'm running up and down stairs. I'm trying to get my way out to 6th Avenue, and everyone's telling me, stop, stop. I'm afraid you, and I'm going. So I get out of the 6th Avenue. I get into the car, and I tell them, listen, Midtown Tunnel, take me home. Don't answer your phone. So that was me against Fox, just to change it. And just quickly, tomorrow I'll be talking about my time with Stephen Fry, Richard Hammond, and just uh, Salman Rushdie. That's a good story. And just if you get a chance, I'll be at the Payomet tomorrow. And thanks once again, girls. We got in the house Susan Foley. Woo! Woo! Yeah! Uh, okay, I'm Susan. I live in Seattle, and we don't have a lot of places to swim in Seattle. It rains a lot, so people don't want to bother with pools. So I found this little pool up in Shoreline, which is about a half an hour away, and I joined it. belonged to it for a couple of years. It was a great pool, pretty cheap, a lot of people who'd belonged to it for years and years and years. And after belonging for a couple of years, I get a phone call from the president, uh, Liz, this woman, who wanted to know if I wanted to join the board. Now, it turns out the board has been manned by sort of the same group of people for about three decades. <laughs> they're looking for some new blood. And she, she makes it clear that they're looking for young'uns to bring on. Now I'm 50. <laughs> I'm thinking, I 
think you're thinking I'm someone I'm not. And she talks about the way they run things and you know, there's a lot of old school paper stuff. And so they clearly want someone that can kind of bring them, you know, and they want an us to bring them into the future. So I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm not particularly savvy with technology or any of that, and I'm thinking, you may have picked the wrong person, but I'm gonna come and I will help, I will do what I can. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll join. And she said, okay, well, our first meeting is gonna be at Nancy's house. Do you know where that is? <laughs> I don't know who Nancy is. I don't know where Nancy lives. So I said, no, but if you tell me, I have a phone, I'll put the address in and I will find Nancy's house. And she said, well, you come on the highway, right? From Seattle, so you know where you get off. That exit, and then you take the left to get to the pool. And I said, yeah, um, but you could just give me her address. And she said, well, take that left. And you know the next left you take to get to the pool, if you didn't take that left, it's the house you would hit. <laughs> so I'm thinking, so, you, so you're not gonna give me an address. Okay. So the meet, day of the meeting, I get in my car, I'm driving, I take the left, I think, I could really hit two houses here, <laughs> depending on which way I go. So I pull over and think, I don't know where this meeting is. And I look, and in the window, you know, there's about six people with white hair waving at me. And I think, that's it. All right, I found it. So I go in, we have the meeting, and there's a lot of stuff going on at this meeting. Clearly, there's a lot of history. So I'm just quietly taking it in, offering to help where I can buy something or where I can help, but really being very quiet for this meeting. There's a lot of personality going on. I could do a lot more stories about the members of the board. But it ends, the meeting ends, and they say, so our next meeting, where should it be? And Brian says, we'll have it at my house. And they said, okay, so next month, Brian's house. And Liz says, do you know where Brian lives? <laughs> I'm not really sure which one is Brian, nor where he lives. So I try again, and I take out my phone, and I say, if you just give me his address, I will find it next month. And she says, well, come to the window. <laughs> so we walk over to the window, and she says, all right, so... You see that, the street up there, down that, that, not the first one, that next street. You're going to go up that street, and just as you get around the corner, it's going to be that first greenhouse, right, Brian? Now, Brian looks angry, and he says, I have a brown house. And she says, when did you paint your house? Now, Brian did not paint his house, and he lets her know, I have never painted my house. My house has been brown for 20 years. So I'm feeling really bad that I've caused this. And she says, well, come over here and tell her how to get to your house. So I try with Brian. I say, well, just if you give me your address, I can find him. Brian says, okay. So not the street here. You see this next street. And you go up this street and around this corner. Now, it's not the first house with a rockery, but the next house with a rockery. Now, I am not sure what he means by a rockery. <laughs> So, I, all right, all right. So, so the meeting ends and everybody goes home and I get in my car and I drive to Brian. I follow him. He's walking. I'm going slow. I see what house he goes in. I pull out my phone. Because I'm not going to find this house in a month if I do not put it in my phone. So that was our us versus them. All right, welcome to the stage, please, Lucy. Okay, so this is a story about me and my ex-boyfriend versus my parents. So um, I was dating this guy named Nick who lived in Queens and I was in Brooklyn. And um, on my 18th birthday, I decided to run away from home and go stay with him. Now, my parents were not happy with me at all because I didn't tell them. I just, like, left. Um, took my stuff, left the house, and my dad freaked. Like, really freaked. He, like, called me, and I'm just like, no, I didn't turn my phone, I turned it off, I was on the subway, and 
minute I got to Queens, I turned my phone on, and I had, like, 100 mis- messages from my dad. I'm just like, shit, um, I should call him back. But I don't call him back. I get the phone to my boyfriend. I'm like, you call him. You talk to him. I'm not talking to him. He's going to yell at me. I'd rather have him yell at you than me. So I get the phone to my boyfriend. He calls my dad, and my dad starts screaming at him, threatening to call the cops because he kidnapped me. And I'm just like, I'm 18. I could leave on my own. And so I spent the night at his house, and I got to school the next morning because I went from his house to school. And I got to school really early, and the teachers there were kind of uneasy that I'd like, done that. So they forced me to call my parents. Um, and I was freaking out because I knew my dad was going to be really mad at me for running away from home. Um, so I did call him. I called my mom first to see how he was, <laughs> to see if I should call him. And so she was like, yeah, he's upset because we didn't know where you were. Um, call him. So I called him. And he was angry, <laughs> very angry at me. But he told me that he still loved me because I am his kid. And since then, I realized that I'm, I'm adopted, so um, my parents and me are very, very different. So when it's, it's me versus them, I have ADHD, they don't have it. So I have, they have to realize what it is for a kid like me in their 20s to live with this. And all the problems with being dating and sex lives and all that stuff and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. They don't know what it is, because when they were little, they didn't have phones. <laughs> or laptops, or TVs, with like all these new fangled movies. And it's, it's really different versus what I went through in my high school life than what they did. Because for us, it's much worse. We get more bullying now. Um, life is different. So I realized that for me, I have to I am me and they're them, but I have to respect them and they have to respect me. Thank you. Shelly Fredman. Come on down. Okay, so I had just graduated college and I returned to St. Louis, my hometown, and I met this guy and we married in this sort of whirlwind romance within six months of meeting each other. And it was maybe not the smartest thing in the world I ever did, but he was generous and he was kind and I was really head over heels in love. And the only problem was, maybe not the only problem, but um, the, on- the problem was that he had a wife and a, a first wife. And she had died in a car accident. And I was living in the house that they had fixed up together. So I would come home and I would go into the bathroom and I would reach up on the dusty top shelf and I would pull down a gold earring. And it was Ellie's. And then I would, you know, another day wander through the closet and find a shirt at the back of the closet that he had held on to, and it was a beautiful white peasant blouse with little X's cross-stitched onto it. And I kind of shoved it back in and, and went on with my day. But it got to the point where I was making dinner, and I would reach up on the shelf to get some spices, and I would think that a part of her was being poured into my pasta and my soup and my rice and I didn't know what to do about all the feelings that I had. To make matters even more complicated, I tried out for a play, which was a wonderful experience. I won the lead role, and I was very excited. But the play was full of supernatural things happening, and I won the part of Leah, whose mother has died at the beginning of the play, and by the second act, she is experiencing her dead lover come to inhabit her body as a dybbuk, a spirit. So I went to rehearsals and my director would say to me, 
you're doing a good job, but you really need to seek your own life within the circumstances of this character. And I thought, okay, well, I didn't have any death experiences that I could call upon. There, of course, was Ellie, but she was my husband's death, not, not mine. So I went home and I paced the sunroom at home and there were little green tendrils of plants around and I tried to learn my lines and it was an old house and there were all these strange sounds and suddenly the wind would come ripping through and a door would slam shut and I'd be so unnerved and I'd say to myself, okay, you know, it's not Ellie's ghost come to haunt you. It's, it's just a door creaking shut. It's an old house. Just rehearse your lines. And this continued for a number of weeks, and then we came to opening night. And we had, it was community theater, so we had invited every aunt and uncle cousin that we knew, and they were all out in the audience. The place was completely packed, and I was back in the wings, and my heart was hammering and my fingers were shaking as they probably are right now. And, and I walked out onto the stage and I began to say my lines. And the lines were addressed to my dead mother in the play and I was inviting her to come, her spirit to come and be with me at my wedding. And as I continued about three lines in, I realized that I wasn't speaking to my dead mother at all. There was someone there and it was a kind of presence and she was as real as the silver legs of the chairs that I could see in the front row. And she was listening to every single line that I said. And my grandpa had once said to me, a heart feels a heart. And that's just how it felt. Ellie was there, she was with me, and our hearts were beating one after another like echoes. Uh, at the end of the speech, I walked off stage and I realized that I didn't need to push her out anymore. She was a part of my husband's life and she would be a part of mine and ours as well. And um, I needed to invite her in and to welcome her. And I kind of thought about whether I would ever tell anyone about what had happened to me out there, but I'm telling you now. Because in that moment, I think that I came to realize that death is not an ending. It's more like a beginning. Okay, next up we have Casey Myers. Woo, 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 woo. Casey. Hello, um, my name's Casey and I never thought I would tell the story but I couldn't resist the theme of us and them. Um, when I was in my early 30s and felt my uh, biological time clock ticking, um, I'd broken up with my boyfriend and uh, I met this guy who worked, he was a town official at one of the towns that I covered as a reporter. And um, we started dating and he, I thought he was perfect, um, mainly because he had an extremely good job, <laughs> like a really good job. And, um, <laughs> and uh, it, that, that had not really been a part of my, uh, like what I'd ever, I'd never been attracted to a guy who actually was super successful, so this was awesome. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna make this work. And, um, and it was going well, I mean, in the beginning, and then I started to notice that he was really quite jealous, extremely jealous. And after two months, I, um, I said, I can't, you know, I'm gonna call, I had a meet, you know, I met him at his, uh, at his house, he poured some wine, he had, uh, he had swordfish that he was ready to grill, and he pours the wine, and we sit down, and I'm like, I can't deal with you being as jealous as you are, so I think we need to take a break. And um, he starts getting mad, he starts pacing. And um, then he's like, and then I said, and then he got worse and worse and worse, and he kept accusing me of going back to my old boyfriend. And I'm kind of like just trying to edge towards the door and get out of there, and after a while, and he's going on and on, and I'm like, 
I'm going to get out the door. And I'm like, you're right, I did. I, I went back to my, ex, my ex-boyfriend. I'm sorry, you know what I mean? And I'm like, cool, I'm out, right? And instead, he, um, which wasn't true, I wasn't, I never, but anyway, it was just a way for me to get out. And it turned, instead of that happening, he uh, grabbed my purse, he grabbed my car keys, and he took my glasses, and I'm extremely nearsighted. And then he basically, in the legal terminology, which I learned later, he kidnapped me. He held me overnight in, um, in his house. And it was a horrible night, obviously. He, um, he actually chained me to the bed. He, yeah, he, um, he spit in my face. He used these words, which actually seemed like ritualistic about women hating words. And I don't want to say it because I see the kids back there, but like, really bad words, just like really, and he was a, a very conservative, gentlemanly, you know, I thought very, um, not the guy, not the kind of guy who would say words like cunt, which is one of the words he used a lot and that night for the first time, but I'd never heard it. So anyway, the night was absolutely horrible. I, uh, in the morning, um, we, I, I was like, I'm, you know, what's going on here? Can I leave? And he's like, he's like, I'm going to go, he goes, take a shower. So he like gets in the shower with me and it's horrible. And he's like, he's six foot six, six foot seven. He's so tall. I can't even remember now, but really tall, really strong. And um, he's like, just wouldn't let me out of his sight for five seconds. And then while he's getting dressed and he's getting on his suit to go to this, to go to his job, he calls his mother and he's like, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, is this, you know, is this good? He's talking to his mother. I can escape. And instead, he's, he suddenly throws me the cordless phone, and he's like, talk to her. Tell her what you did to me. And I'm like, um, hi. And I'm like, sorry. And I just, I don't know what to do. Suddenly, I realized he kind of had backed away. He was back, like, getting his tie or his shoes on or something. And I'm like, you tell her. And I threw the phone, and I ran. I ran as fast as I could. I ran down the stairs. He's on my heels, like, big time. Like, really. Like, I made it out the door. I just ran to the, like, small little lots in this neighborhood. I ran to the neighbor's house. I knocked on the door. There was a 17-year-old uh, babysitter there with two little kids. And um, she, she, I came to find out later she was a, a Cape Cod Academy student in Osterville, and she was just the nicest girl ever. She's like, don't come inside, because I start saying, my boyfriend freaked out, he, he attacked me, he held me overnight, I need to call my, I need to call work. For some reason, I'm like, I've got to call work and tell them I'm not coming in. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and, and he's like this, right behind me, like this, he's like, oh, she's fine, we're fine now. I'm, it was, it's all over, it's fine, we're good, we're good. And she's like, here's the phone, neither of you are going to come inside. She's like, I'd like you to leave my property to this, to this guy. And she lets me use the phone, I call work, I call the... Um, I called the, the, the newsroom's uh, secretary, and I said, I'm not coming into work today. My boyfriend freaked out. Really bad scene. I'll tell you later, but I'm going to go get a restraining order. And she's like, okay. And she hangs up, and so I'm kind of standing there. I kind of forgot what happens next, but suddenly I see not one, not two, but like 10 police cruisers flying down the road, and they park all around this house. They've got like a perimeter around his house, and um, they, they knock on the door, and he had these big two giant horrible dogs, and um, the dogs, um, he, and they had to get sequestered, get the dogs away, and the last, the vision that I really have of him is being led out in handcuffs with his tie on and everything, and, um, and I'm like, all right, I'm like, well, like that's, that was horrible, and, and I, you know, I get interviewed by the police, so the police were so nice, they were so sweet, and um, the next morning I woke up, and uh, it's in the front page of the paper that I work for, because uh, what I hadn't realized was that along with calling the paper and they called the cops, which I'm so glad that they did call the cops, I just didn't think that was, I don't know, I wasn't in the right frame of mind, so I didn't call them myself. But they called the cops, that was awesome, you know, clean break. And, and, um, but they also sent the photographer who lived down the street and they had a reporter do a page one story. Um, and, and they didn't use my name, of course, because I was a victim of domestic violence, but, uh, but the us and them part was, then I had to face this kind of like the horrible shame of being written about in the newspaper when something awful happens to you. And I had done that, of course, for 15 years previous to that as a reporter myself. And as the whole court proceedings played out, because he was a public official, so therefore it was a story, I would see all my, um, my my colleagues in the press corps covering the hearings and all that stuff. And it was like, I mean, it was, the us and them thing was I understood 
intellectually what was happening and would have done the same thing myself had I had been them. And at the same time, I was me, and I was going through this hideous emotional feeling of shame and thinking like I was so desperate that I went with this creep. And anyway, and it was, it was um, it's, it's pretty unresolved in my mind, basically. I still can't make the two things meet, the part of me that was felt so shamed and hideous and the part of me that gets why we reported it. And he ended up losing his job, and I do think it's because we did run the story um, because the, whatever happened to him in court wasn't really that big a deal to his life. But he lost his job, and that was a big impact, and I think it, in the end, helped society because he had a job that was related to safety. So that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Michael Doherty. Michael Doherty. Michael. It's fake. Back uh, when I didn't have a job and was not appealing to members of the opposite sex, um, <laughs> I uh, lived with another number of roommates, as probably many of you have, and uh, you could probably come up with a million us and them stories with roommates based on. Uh, two versus one, upstairs versus downstairs, and so on. Uh, in any case, in 1991, I lived in Radcliffe Road in Alston with two other roommates, Ben and Sean. And uh, this was a small two-bedroom apartment, and the third bedroom was made out of the communal living space where the TV was. They had, there was a, a horrible brown Velcro soft couch the hard part of the Velcro, not the soft. Um, and everyone ate in there, and it was always a mess, and it was disgusting. And after a few days, a few nights, it was apparent there was something else in the house, <laughs> along with us, and that's the them. But it wasn't clear what it was, but we would wake at night with the sense that somehow we'd been invaded or touched or, or compromised in some way. And it became apparent, if you switched on your light, that there were roaches. And these weren't just your sort of translucent, light brown little roaches. These were the big carapace roaches that were, you know, evolved over eons and millennia, fed with pizza and pork sandwiches and the detritus of a college boy's room. Uh, these, these were hardened roaches, well-versed in existing in Alston, Brighton, and presumably many of you have seen these roaches before. But So we went to Star Market and bought all kinds of roach killer and things like that and laid our traps and felt pretty good about things. But sure enough, the next night and the nights thereafter, there's still that creepy, crawly feeling over your face or body. <laughs> they were winning. And we were losing, so we started to rethink our strategy, and some of the strategies were, were quite perverse, and one was to get duct tape and duct tape every outlet that you weren't using, because they must have crawled out through the electrical prong sockets. I mean, their logic wasn't really there at this point, but we would put draft mats beneath the doors to prevent them running under the doors, and I had sealed the door to the porch with duct tape all the way around it, and I felt like you know, my Russian space station of a room was pretty tight, and the problem was getting better for me, but it wasn't getting better for Ben, who had the communal room, the non-bedroom, the room where everyone ate. So Ben came up with this scheme that he would raise his bed, he would elevate his bed on milk crates. So he, he got four milk crates, you know, and Milk crates were the universal custom for college kids back in the 90s. You put your records in them, you put your clothes in them. Ben elevated his bed with milk crates. He elevated it one milk crate high for one week, but that didn't work. Two milk crates high, <laughs> no better. And, and yet this logic seemed to somehow still work for him. He went to three milk crates, and now he had to climb up this Velcro couch into his bed, you had to sort of throw himself into this elevated bed that still didn't prevent the roaches from getting on him. Remember, we were boys without jobs living in, in a first apartment. And one night, Ben, after a night of drinking, managed to seduce someone. 
which was a remarkable feat in itself. <laughs> and, you know, they came home and there was music playing. Maybe it was, uh, I feel like making love. <laughs> and it's just playing along. <laughs> and Sean and, and I, we're in our respective rooms. We're like, can you believe this? No, I mean, she must not know. And anyway, the, the screaming started well into the evening, like, like not just happy scream. This was terrified screams that were related to them, the roaches invading the three-story bed and disturbing their, their love-making. So we, we were never able to, to win against them. That's all I got. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company's Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff. Find your next opportunity to join us at facebook.com slash Mosquito Story Slam and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on soundcloud.com. You can also find us now on iTunes. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. (laughs) 